morning. Today's scripture reading can be is from 2 Samuel chapter 17 verses 27 through 29 and chapter 18 verses 4 through 9, 14 through 18 and 31 through 33 and can be found on page 6 of your bulletins. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites and Machir son of Amiel from Lodabar and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake and all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in a tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Joab took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him in a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's, Absalom's monument to this day. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, we are finishing our multi-month study of the life of David next week. And so this today is our second to, life, uh, second to last installment in the life of David. And so let's take a look at this story. But first, let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you so much in advance for meeting us just as we need to be met by you. You're the only one with the wisdom to know where we need grace from God in our lives, whether if it's for a, a softening of hardened hearts or if it's for strength for weak hearts, whether if it's to see you more clearly or to see ourselves more clearly. But we confess we need you. We deeply need you. Not only the Jesus that we find in this passage, but also to know how to apply him 
to live in light of him. So help us. The great news, our great hope, is that you promise, you promise to help us in these moments. So with joy, we look to your word and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We love our Hollywood celebrities, don't we? We love our Hollywood celebrities. We love their glitz and their glam. We love gawking at their fairy tale lives that they live. But we also like the occasional reminder that they're normal, sort of, normal people like us too. Which is why Grocery Isle magazines have those ridiculous segments called They're Just Like Us. I don't know if you know what I mean, right? If you've seen this, it's where they show a candid photo of some celebrity uh, sort of caught doing an ordinary thing in life. And so, for example, there's a, a shot of Jimmy Kimmel taking the subway to the Emmys, and this shocker of a headline is, they ride the subway just like us, right? Katie Holmes eats gelato straight from the tub, just like us. J-Lo secretly shops at discount stores, <gasps> just like us. And get this Norman Reedus, any Walking Dead fans out there, uh, chatted with Jonah Hill for 10 minutes in New York City, and they exchanged phone numbers, just like us. And Beyonce, no, sorry, Beyonce's not just <laughs> like us. The Bible is full of, you might say, spiritual celebrities and heroes, of course. David is one of them. We've been studying his life. David, the songwriter, the soldier, the greatest of Israel's kings, this man of justice and mercy and steadfast love. But do you know that no one does a better job of they're just like us than the Bible? Not the silly version, but the real and the raw version. Not about secretly shopping discount stores, but about secret sins and not-so-secret sins. Stories published not in the tabloids, but actually stories published by the official biographers of the Bible. Stories about the greatest needs and flaws and failures of its greatest heroes, like about David, swelling with arrogance, committing adultery, then committing murder to try to cover it all up. The Bible is full of stories about how its heroes desperately need the grace of God for healing, for rescue, for Wholeness, that's right, just like us. Well, here's one more way that David was just like us. His family was broken, dysfunctional, and filled with pain. Do you know a family like that? 
If you were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 13, there you would find the nightmarish story about how David's daughter Tamar is raped by her half-brother Amnon, David's oldest son. And as you can imagine, it's an incident that forever changes David's family. Maybe there's a traumatic event that forever changed your family. And you know how sometimes there's something in your family that you need to confront, but you just can't get yourself to do it. Well, when David found out about it, he was furious, but took no action. Another of his sons, however, did in all the wrong ways. I'm talking about Absalom. Two years later, he avenged his sister's assault by killing his brother. After his act of vigilante justice, Absalom fled and lived away from home for three years. Maybe, maybe not unlike the estranged siblings that some of you might have too. We're told that David longed to see his son Absalom, but even after Absalom was finally brought back from banishment, David managed to avoid him, didn't see him at all, probably out of anger, probably out of resentment, but for two full years. That was sort of the epitome of the passive-aggressive family. I know none of us can identify with that. Eventually, Absalom starts undermining King David. He quietly campaigns for the people's political support. 2 Samuel chapter 15 tells us he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Within four years, Absalom's conspiracy against his own dad becomes a full-blown coup. David is forced to flee for his safety, flee from his home, his throne, his country. As Absalom plots to assassinate his dad, we are left with this image of David. David hustling out of Jerusalem barefoot, we're told, weeping as he went. That's where things are as today's passage from chapters 18 and 19 opens. David's still on the run from his son. He's been hiding out in the wilderness with a cadre of supporters. As you see from this list of bedding and, and bowls and wheat, beans, sheep, and cheese in the first paragraph, you can see they've become dependent on the generosity of some wealthy foreigners. Otherwise, they're depleted. They're alone. They're in the wilderness. Verse 29 tells us they're exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, probably emotionally and spiritually as much as physically. They're getting ready for a device, decisive battle with Absalom and his men. And this is what it's all come down to right here. You can't miss the tragedy of it all. The commander of the enemy forces is David's own son. 
And verses 6 and 7 tells us that David's army marched out to fight who? Israel. The king of Israel is fighting the troops of Israel. David's own soldiers have been absolutely turned against him. Casualties that day were great. Verse 7 says 20,000 men. But the way this story is narrated, the casualty that we're invited to notice most is David's broken heart. Because this is a story about betrayal. Are you familiar with this story in your own story, in your own life? Broken relationships, broken promises, surprises, pain untold. Life grants all kinds of suffering, doesn't it? Even the most faithful to God are not immune to it. The Bible tells us so. But the worst kind of suffering is often the pain of broken relationships, especially family relationships, and it doesn't really get worse than betrayal, does it? Some of you know all too well what it's like to experience the emotional pain of a friend who turns against you, maybe even a child who turns against you, like a, a, a javelin plunged into your heart or maybe a spouse, or even a neighbor, whatever it might be, there's nothing worse than broken relationships and a broken heart that results from it. So what should you do? What should you do? Well, among other things, you should do what David did. Do you know? Pray your pains before God. Sing your sorrows before God. Process out loud before the one who calls you to himself. Process the details of all that feels mangled within. Because do you know what David did while he was in the wilderness? While he was running from Absalom? He was writing songs, poems, prayers. We have them recorded in the book of Psalms. Most especially, Psalm chapter 3 starts with an inscription that introduces the psalm this way. A psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. And what do some of those words sound like? What does that prayer with a broken heart sound like? Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. 
Sometimes pain has a way of hardening our hearts. David turned towards God and so therefore kept a soft heart. Sometimes pain makes us want to run from God. The grace of God enables us in times of pain to turn towards God and to bring that pain to God. Again and again throughout the Psalms, these inspired prayers and songs, we find David writing about different situations and hardships that we see echoed throughout this story. Listen to Psalm chapter 55. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Oh, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. If you've experienced the pain, the searing, javelin-like pain of betrayal, Would you learn to pray to God about that betrayal like that? Or listen to Psalm 63, also a well-known psalm. The inscription reads like this, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Right, a, 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 a man who physically is thirsting, who also sees how much his tho- soul, parched by grief, thirsts for the living God. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As David writes these words, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul clings to you. My right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. Don't you want to learn to pray like that in times like that? And don't you hear the the mixture in David's prayers, this mixture of, of, of honesty and hope, of turning towards the sadness, of turning towards the confusion, not running away, and turning towards the Lord not running away. Because we need to bring these to God, to work through them before God, especially when we're at our most confused. Because you know, don't you know, your pain, 
even your experience of betrayal might be the very place where you most meet God, even rediscover God. You see, because David found God where? In the wilderness. Some of you feel like you're in a wilderness even today. The wilderness of betrayal and broken relationships. Or, or maybe it's the wilderness of unpaid bills. Or broken dreams. Or chronic illness. See, what the wilderness does is it sort of strips life down where you're brought to the bare necessities of life. Sometimes you're brought to your knees you know, food and water and just enough for survival. Sometimes God brings us to the wilderness places of life to strip away the things that numb us, that distract us, that turn us away from the power and the presence of God. If you're in the wilderness today, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to ways that God absolutely intends to show up in your life. In maybe the most unexpected ways, but perhaps, perhaps in the most life-changing ways. Are you paying attention? Friends, this is a story about betrayal. It's also a story about love. A story about love, a story about loving even when your heart's been crushed. It's a story about loving someone with a suffering love, even when they've wronged you, even when they've wronged you terribly. See, most of us in David's shoes probably would have recoiled in anger, Maybe self-pity, or maybe just plain old exhaustion. Many of us would have looked for a chance for revenge. But David's not like us here, is he? Did you notice what he did in chapter 18, verse 5? He tells his commanders, be what? Gentle, gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. It's an amazing request. Absalom, you remember, robbed David of everything that he had. Publicly humiliated David. Absalom turned nearly the whole nation against David. Now he's trying to kill his dad. David has every reason and right to seek payback. And instead he commands his commanders to be gentle with Absalom, his son. David's fatherly heart for his rebel son could not be extinguished. But don't miss it. This is not simply a story about a natural father's natural love, but rather a weak and sinful man communicating through his love the perfect fatherly love of God. As Psalm 103 reminds us of this God, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him.
And after Absalom is killed, the messenger comes to bring the news of, uh, to the king in verses 31 and 32. And, and what's, what's the first question that's on David's lips? The first question he asks, is the young man Absalom safe? It's the main thing that's on his mind. And when David hears that his son is dead, we're told in verse 33, the king was shaken. He, he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's a haunting description of an anguished father calling on the name of his son, five times crying out, my son. And you may know that even the doubling of my son, my son, is an ancient Hebrew form of address that represents personal intimacy. Even in these moments, David's giving his heart to the one who had betrayed him so. These are words that convey forgiveness, a heart that won't let the relationship be defined by the record of wrongs. This is love. This is suffering love. Who in your life do you need a most love like this today? But don't miss this important point. This passage, you might have noticed, doesn't back away from Absalom's guilt at all. Verse 18 reminds the reader that during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. We live in a city of monuments, don't we? But no one, even here, dares build one in his or her own honor. Absalom did just that. As one commentator put it, this sums up Absalom's inordinate personal vanity. And even the way that verses 9 through 15 tells the story of Absalom's death, it's actually told in a way that suggests that his fate was deserved. We're told that while he was riding his mule, Absalom's hair got caught on the thick branches of a large oak tree. And he was then left hanging in midair. And you have to understand that in the Old Testament world, trees were symbols of justice. Like a courtroom and execution chamber rolled up into one. And it's why places like Deuteronomy 21 declare... Cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree. And so the symbolism couldn't be clearer. Here's Absalom hanging from a tree under the judgment of God. And then notice how they even bury the body after he's killed. Verse 17 says they took Absalom, threw him into a, a, a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Now, normally, a faithful Israelite would be buried next to their ancestors. 
that symbolized that they would be reunited with their family in the afterlife, the, the chief of blessings. So to be almost discarded into a, a big pit in the forest all alone represented Absalom's disinheritance, his being eternally cut off from his family. Well, that was a way to symbolize that a person was being denied his right of connection, his belonging in the family. But how about this, this pile of rocks on top of his grave? What's that all about? There's a way to symbolize that the person was being denied a future resurrection. It would have been sort of like pouring steel-reinforced concrete over someone's grave, sort of symbolizing not letting them out, you see, not ever. Because Absalom was under the judgment of God. And, and here's the point. Here is the important point. Listen, Absalom was wrong. For all that he did to his brother, to his dad, to his nation, to his God. He, he's as guilty as heck. But David still loves. Listen, love is complicated. Love is complicated. David doesn't look past Absalom's evil. He finds a way to love his son even in the face of evil. Which is what God did for David, isn't it? Why could David plead with his soldiers to be gentle with the young man Absalom? who had so betrayed him, who had stuck a dagger in his heart, who had turned his world upside down with impunity. Why could David plead for gentleness for Absalom? Because he knew that God had been gentle with him. In his own sin, in his own failures, just a few chapters flipped back before in his life story. See, David could love because he himself had been loved. David could love a betrayer because David knew that he had been loved himself as a betrayer. And we too, you too, I too, can love like that because we too have been loved by the greater David. The one that would come from the family of David. The, the king who, who actually didn't flee from Jerusalem. Away from the people's rebellion. But actually went into Jerusalem toward the people's rebellion. Right into our lives. And the rebellion and betrayal of our hearts even weeping over them as he rode in. Who was betrayed by those whom he shared the most intimate places of his life. And I'm not talking just about Judas. 
I'm talking about me. Because nobody was thrust into the furnace of betrayal like him. And he didn't only cry, if only I had died instead of you. He actually did die instead of you and instead of me for all our acts of vengeance and betrayal. And so he was crucified on a cross, you know, a tree like Paul. As Galatians 3 reminds us, cursed and condemned by God, not for his sins, but for ours. And he was betrayed, if that's the right word, as the Father himself turns his face away, afflicting upon the very soul of his Son the wrath of God for the judgment that you and I deserve. And he was buried alone in a new tomb, a symbol of his humiliation and forsakenness by God and man. But then after three days rose up from that steel-reinforced pile of rocks, victorious over sin, Victorious over betrayal and vengeance. Victorious over death. And all because he loves you. Because this God is a God who loves with a broken heart. And his son is a savior who loves with suffering love. So we can find strength in him to love like David, to find such power in the greater David, Jesus, who loved, though we've greatly betrayed him. Are you today faced with the challenge of loving someone who's wronged you? A broken relationship, one that maybe just feels like it's never going to get fixed. When you know your Absalom, you can begin to love like David. When you know your Judas, you can start to love like Jesus. Listen, Jesus suffered betrayals and brokenness just like us, so that in him, because of his love, we might learn to love with a suffering love just like his. You want to love like that? Let's pray. We're desperate for you. Can't change our own hearts can't give power to our weak lives to be like you. We need you. We need you, Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to change us, and most of all, to impact our hearts with the story of good news. That we've been loved like this. That we've been forgiven. That we serve a God who's cried out for gentleness, upon us for healing and wholeness 
for an inpouring of the love of the Savior into our lives. Help us to experience that again afresh for many of us, for many of us for the first time. Do that today. Do that even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.